All right, we are back, and Alan Gannett is standing by. He's the founder and CEO of Track Maven, and he's written his latest book, The Creative Curve. Good morning, Alan. Hey, how are you? Great. Loved your book. It was really, really interesting because I always had this one notion of what it means to be creative and where your ideas come from, and how did this all come about? Yeah, so, you know, I my day job is I run a marketing analytics company, and I spend a lot of time with marketers, and marketers are creatives, but I found that most marketers are undergoing this, you know, crisis of confidence, this crisis of creative confidence where they're constantly thinking, I'm not creative enough, and I can't do that. And, you know, I'm not Mozart, I'm not Beethoven. And I found that not only as marketers, but most of the creators I knew kept saying these same things. And I just got a little frustrated. I, you know, I'm a big believer in human potential, and it is sad to see so many smart people who were limiting themselves. And the reality is, when you look at the science, we know that the human mind has this amazing ability, it actually has very few limits, but these amazing ability to actually get better at things, including creativity. I loved how you talked about the Beatles and how a song came to, was it John in his sleep? Paul. Oh, excuse yeah, me, Paul. Paul. Uh, and, you know, I've woken up actually in the middle of the night and I, because I like to write, um, I'm a screenwriter as well, and I come up with this idea, I don't know, and I think I better write this down because I'm totally forget <laughs> it, <laughs> or it'll be mishmash, um, but, you know, ideas just come to us. So this is one of those things where when you start talking about creativity as a skill and a craft, you know, people sort of go, well, what about aha moments, right? What about flashes of genius? And we have these famous narratives and stories you've heard, you know, Isaac Newton being hit with an apple and thinking of gravity, with Paul McCartney waking up with the melody for yesterday in his head. And these moments, they feel magical, they're not actually magic. What they are, and I talk about this in the book, is our right hemisphere, how it processes information. Is it processes information um, really focused around bringing distant ideas and concepts together in new and novel ways? And that sort of information processing, well, it all happens subconsciously. So unlike our left hemisphere where our logical thinking resides, which is all of that processing, that very step-by-step, you know, what you're doing when you're solving a math problem, that's very conscious. Your right hemisphere acts much more sort of below the level of awareness. And the analogy that I like to give is think about your brain's two sides as a loud lab partner in college and a quiet lab partner. So your left hemisphere is that loud lab partner who's, you know, always kind of shouting and saying, okay, let's do this and then do this and then this. And look, we solved the puzzle. Good job, team. And you're like, why is everything a team? And the right hemisphere is that dorkier, quiet lab partner who's sitting there sort of mumbling to him or herself, and only once they get the answer do they sort of perk up and say, hey, I got the answer. But the thing is, is that if your loud lab partner, if your left hemisphere is too much going on, you don't actually experience what's been going on in your right hemisphere. And so the result is that we experience aha moments in moments of sort of peace, right? So when you're on a commute or on the sh- you know, in the shower, on a run, it's not that the commute is inspiring, but literally your left hemisphere is just, you know, nothing's going on. Same when you're at sleep. And this is why, you know, we talk about drugs and alcohol being tied to creativity because these are all things that suppress your left hemisphere activity. But you don't have to do drugs. You can just go on a run. Right. I mean... Sometimes even when I walk, I'll get an idea, or I'm on a plane and I bring a notebook and I get an idea. Totally, because these are all moments when there's less stuff going on in your left hemisphere, less activity, you're processing less 
active information. And so the ideas of him bouncing around your right hemisphere, um, you can actually hear those. And one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is that I interviewed these 25 creative achievers. So these were Oscar winners, billionaires, you know, folks like Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo behind Dear Evan Hansen and La La Land. And mm-hmm. what was interesting from all these interviews is one of the patterns I found was that these creative achievers are actually also huge creative consumers. So we talk about consumers and creatives almost in opposition to each other. You know, consumers consume, creators create. But in reality, what you find is that the best creatives also consume huge amounts of specialized knowledge. They go very, very deep in a narrow vertical. And the reason is that, well, if you want to connect the dots, you have to have dots to connect. You have to have ideas for your right hemisphere to actually chew on, to work on, to process in new and interesting ways. And so what you find is that you hear these stories over and over again of you know novelists spent their entire childhood in books reading. Um, I can't tell you how many writers I interviewed who told me some variation of, I lived near the library growing up, and I read every book in the library. And you hear this very common theme around consumption, which I think for a lot of people is very surprising, because I think we often mistake um, creativity and productivity as the same thing. Right. But the reality is that sometimes it's okay to you know measure twice and cut once. I want to mention uh, to our listeners, if you're just tuning in, uh, we're speaking with Alan Gannett. He's written a book, The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Uh, You talk about the learnable four-step process, um, consumption, which you just talked about, imitation, creative communities, and iterations. I, I was reading this thinking, oh, this makes so much sense, obviously. When you were writing this book, did you have a clear idea of where this book was going to go? Because it's... It's so well thought out, and and you have all these really interesting stories of people. Thank you so much. Um, So, no, the book actually, I mean, the book took a long time to write and sort of morphed over time, and it was a very cool, organic process because it was very research-driven, and so basically my approach was I interviewed all of the living academics who are big in the fields of creativity, whether that's psychology or neuroscience, sociology, because there's actually quite a bit of academic um, study and rigor around creativity. And I also wanted to interview actual living, practicing creative achievers. Mm-hmm. And so as I was consuming all these data points, uh, I started to see these patterns that appeared over and over again. And so in the book, I outlined these four patterns that you talked about. And those are the four patterns I found had 100% compliance. All of the creative achievers I interviewed, they all did those things. And ultimately, what I thought was so interesting was that so much of what creativity is at the end of the day is really the social phenomenon where, you know, we maybe have this notion of creativity as, you know, the ability to create things that are radically new and, you know, genius. But there's plenty of people who are geniuses. There are plenty of people who are in Mensa who are not creative achievers. There's, um, you know, plenty of people who create interesting things, but, you know, they never popularize them or get recognition for them. In reality, what we talk about our culture, when we talk about creativity, what we're really talking about is what sociologists call big C creativity. See, little c creativity is just productivity, it's just creating something. Big C creativity is creating something new and valuable, something that's new and recognized by a group as valuable. And so there's this really fascinating sort of cultural, this timing aspect, but really this sort of interpersonal dynamic where you have to be able to get your ideas to spread that's so essential to creativity. I feel like, I mean, you talk about looking at patterns and themes, this is like a dissertation. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it took, you know, over three years to write, and yeah. it was a really good, you know, it was just an enjoyable process. And obviously, if you ever want to feel pressure, um, you know, write a book about creating hits. So that's always fun. Right. Now, you have such an impressive list of people that were part of this. How did this all come about? I mean, was it like a domino effect of certain people, and then you were introduced to other people? How did that work? Yeah, so for the book I interviewed, this, I tried to be pretty eclectic in the set of characters. So it's everyone from, like, David Rubenstein, the billionaire, to um, Ted Sarandos, the chief content on Netflix, to Brenda Chapman, the first woman to win the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, and sort of so on. And um, basically, I sort of had the first sort of three to five interviews mm-hmm. were sort of extended network, and then sort of built the social proof, because I had those, and then we got the book deal, and we got the agent, and as all of those milestones happened, and we got more names, it became increasingly easy to get more and more interviews. And so that was, I think, one of the interesting parts about writing a book like this, is you just meet a lot of really fascinating people. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting was, you know, these people who are at the tippy tops of their field, like the tippy, tippy top, right. they, are, they tend to be, like, pretty darn nice. And I don't think this is just a selection bias issue because even okay. some people who I didn't interview but I interacted with, I found to be like very, very kind relative to like maybe the middle management or upper mid management of these organizations can sometimes be jerks. Okay. But the senior principals, these people who have these long career arcs and have somehow survived the ups and downs of their industries, they all seem to be very kind and nice and generous. And I think that really speaks to the sort of long-term thinking these people have. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people these days tend to rush their careers and try and be overly aggressive early on, and they don't sort of see that, hey, you want to be 50 and 60 and still doing this. Right. But let's also think about if you're kind and nice, that goes pretty far in life. Totally. Totally. And I think there's a long arc to justice. And obviously in creative industries, we're seeing this right now with the sort of Me Too shakeout, and we're seeing that... You know, I think eventually with enough time, uh, it seems like society is getting better and better at rooting out the jerks. Yes, which would be a great thing, by the way. <laughs> so, Alan, where can people find out more about you? Yes, so um, the book's website is thecreativecurve.com, and you can watch a book trailer that includes my very adorable four-year-old corgi and a little cameo, so check it out. I saw that. That was so cute. <laughs> All right, it's been great having you on the show. I really enjoyed the book. Congratulations, and I'll be in touch. Thank you. All right, Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Alan Gannett talking about his book, The Creative Curve. And all the info is on the show blog, getthefunkoutshow.kci.org. And our conversation will be up on there within an hour after I wrap. One more guest calling in. We're going to talk about virtual reality and uh, all kinds of great stuff. So we'll listen to some Jeff Buckley, and then I'll be back. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.